0: So the BC Humanist Association actually made some pretty significant gains in 2018. It was a weird year because there were times where I personally felt like we were spinning our tires and things weren't really moving. The federal government had stalled on the blasphemy law. It felt like at times membership growth stalled a little bit, but then there would be a huge spurt. I have a little database chart that shows me how many new email subscribers we get, and there'd be periods where it would only be a small growth each month, and then there'd be like 400 join in a month. So it was sort of a punctuated equilibrium type of year. But when I look back, and especially in December, everything kind of just fell into place. And I think the biggest one I haven't talked a lot in the emails or online about, even though it has been up there, is the change the government made to the Income Tax Act to finally charities. So I've talked here before about the restrictions on charitable organizations in Canada and how these can prevent charities from speaking out, especially on public policy issues. This was a big issue under the previous federal government, the Harper government, when a bunch of money was put to Canada Revenue Agency to crack down on activist environmental NGOs that were just funded by the Tides Foundation to kill pipelines, as they said. On the other hand, what was really happening when you talk to these charities is most of their work is educational, that includes ours, and when you try to actually audit them, none have actually been found to be breaking what were the existing political activities rules. However, when you put a charity under intense audit and tell them to account for every minute that they spend and whether that minute is trying to change laws or is just trying to tell people what the laws are and what the issues are, It stresses them out and wastes everyone's time and money so as a reminder the way the laws were set up was there was this limit on political activities on charities in Canada what a political activity was was never really defined and so the CRA made up a bunch of rules and those varied so one thing that's considered a political or was considered a political activity was trying to advocate for a law or policy to be changed but If you went and made a presentation to a parliamentary committee, that wasn't a political activity. That would be just a representation to government, which is apparently okay. But talking about whether an activity was a political activity counted as a political activity at your board meeting. And it's this level of confusion and stupidity, frankly, that made a lot of charities really angry. So in the summer, this big court case came down in Ontario, where Canada Without Poverty who was actually found to be doing like almost entirely political activities. Because their approach was the best way to end poverty is to change the laws that create poverty, not to just hand people sandwiches. Because well that's a good thing to do, if we can change the system that makes people poor, then we don't need to worry about poverty anymore. And so they were focused entirely on advocacy as a charity. And the court found that these rules that I just talked about were absurd and infringed upon their free speech. For our own organization, what this meant is a lot of the things we try to talk about in terms of secularism relate with government. And so we always have to be mindful of, if we put a petition out, does that count? Uh, do these things affect us? You know, And when it comes to the time to do our tax filings, how many hours has Ian spent? And where it became really problematic for some of these charities is some of them are all run by lawyers, so they're used to uh, tracking everything by the 15-minute increment, which just gave more ammunition to the auditors to try to judge them. So the federal government, after a bunch of consultations, had promised to change these rules but hadn't done anything. And then finally, in the fall they released of this year, or of 2018, they released a small update that said, all right, we'll tweak them a bit. And then charities said, that's not great enough. And then with their fall fiscal update, they just totally removed the political activities restrictions and put in a new enabling provision, essentially, that allows charities to engage in public policy dialogue. So charities can't be partisan. We can't advocate for the Conservative Party. We can't advocate against the Liberal Party or any of their candidates or people. But we can talk about ideas. And that's all we ever want to do because no party is perfect. And we're not going to ever be the orange Humanist Association or the Green Humanist Association. We are about humanism, which transcends politics in theory. Now, the fear of this, of course, that people raise is doesn't this also allow churches to speak out? Doesn't this allow anti-abortion charities to start challenging back? And I always have two responses for that. The first is free speech. If we're going to allow people to speak out on these issues, we have to allow everyone to speak out. But I think the second and more core one is you still have to be a charity. You still have to advance something that is for the public good, for the public benefit. You have to make a better world. And in my view, trying to remove rights and trying to take people's freedoms away, whether that's reproductive freedoms or LGBTQ equality, those don't actually advance the public interest. And so I would hope in the next year we can take this victory of the last year and move forward to try to really define what a charity is. Because that's the other thing I've been talking about a lot with the government when I make submissions on this, is right now, to be a charity in Canada, there are four major headings that come from very, very old case law from England. You can relieve poverty, as we talked about. You can advance education, and that's some of what we do. You can advance religion, or you can do other public benefits that the courts have defined, whether that's like protecting the environment, uh, promoting better health, those kind of things, advancing human rights. But this advancement of a religion, the courts have explicitly said, you have to promote an element of theistic worship. So you can't have an atheistic religion, even though that's a problematic term for many people. But at least if that could be, we could promote humanist religion. And it's a twisting of the word, but fine. We can be a charity that way. But we can't be a charity that way. So we need a better case law, because right now the law assumes that promoting religion benefits society. And I think we, as an organization, might treat that with a bit more skepticism. This is a long-term project to try to change this law. Every other Commonwealth country, though, has. Uh, In particular, England has recognized a longer list of charitable activities, including the advancement of religion that involves belief in no gods or one or more gods. That's where Humanist UK is now the promotion of the atheistic religion of humanism. Or human rights as another benefit to the community. There might be some opportunity in the new year because the federal government has talked about recognizing journalism as a charitable activity. We all know the state of the media is not great these days, and there's a hope that by allowing media organizations to become charitable and issue charitable tax credits, that that will help them be more sustainable. And if we're opening up the definition of charity for that, we can try and hopefully shoehorn in our own concerns because that's how the law progresses. When you see an opening, you have to try to open it a bit wider. So hopefully with this change, at least with the changes we've had so far, we don't have to worry about the auditors coming down on us. So far, I think we've mostly been fine because our organizational budget has been fairly small, under $50,000 a year. But we're starting to get above that on year over year, and we might have even bigger news to share later, and maybe we'll be even bigger. We don't want the auditors to come down on us, and now they won't. So that lets us do everything else I'm going to talk about without fear, without me having to look over my shoulder and count my minutes. The big news of last year was, of course, Canada repealing the blasphemy law. I yelled at you by email about this constantly. I asked you to sign petitions. I asked you to write to parliamentarians. I celebrated when we saw advances. And finally, in December, the government passed the not evil Bill C-51. It's really annoying when the uh, parliamentary bill cycle is just a number that repeats every time a new government comes in or a new session starts. So we all remember Bill C-51 was the anti-terror legislation of the Harper government, Well, the new Bill C-51 was cleanups to the criminal code and some other things. And those other things actually slowed down repealing the blasphemy law, which no one opposed. As far as I could tell, no one in Canada made a submission, told their parliamentarians that they wanted the old provision prohibiting blasphemous libel kept in the criminal code. That said, all of your voices emailing parliamentarians and telling them we need to take this out reminded them that there is actually a point to doing this, to cleaning up old laws, because it lets Canada be not a hypocrite on the world stage when we criticize countries like Pakistan or Saudi Arabia for imposing blasphemy laws. Now, at the same time, people did get upset when the liberals proposed removing uh, Section 176. And I didn't actually know about this criminal code provision until people got annoyed about it, and then I had to look it up. Because when the religious right gets angry about something, I want to know why. Maybe they're right? Probably not. I'm probably on the other side. And Section 176 was a provision that's still enforced uh, that prevents that makes it a crime to disturb a religious, worship, a religious service or to arrest a minister or clergyman in the performance of their spiritual work. So it's already a crime to do mischief, to go and disturb the peace, and these, all these other crimes. But it's an extra crime to go into church and stir shit up, to steal something, or to interrupt things. And this extra crime could give you an extra two years in jail on top of whatever other crimes they get you. So we argued, or I argued, that this extra crime suppresses religious dissent. Because if you think about it, who's protesting a religious service? It's probably someone who's within that congregation but doesn't agree with what the leadership is doing. And so this crime actually protects the religious orthodoxy, the leadership of it. Now, they did make the language in it a bit more gender neutral and updated a bit. But the big thing that this showed was that the Christian right in Canada is still organized enough to get thousands of letters and emails to their MPs to the point where the committee members of all parties essentially decided this provision needs to stay, this is section 176. So while well, we got rid of the blasphemy law, the one we were targeting, it did also show that there is still a vocal but small organized lobby. But yeah we got rid of blasphemy law and we can celebrate that. It turned our country from orange to green on the international campaign to end blasphemy laws, which was a nice feeling. The other thing that happened last year that was really worth celebrating, which funnily enough we didn't do anything last year about, was the Supreme Court of Canada coming down in June with its decision that Trinity Western University's proposed law school didn't have to be approved by the law societies, which is a long way to say Supreme Court of Canada rejects Trinity Western University Law School. As a reminder, this is the evangelical school out in the Fraser Valley that wanted to open a law school. Their community covenant at the school said you couldn't engage in sex outside of heterosexual marriage. Uh, You can't uh, violate the dignity or sanctity of life, so probably no abortions or assisted deaths and you can't be involved in. Couldn't be a witness to one, probably. And law societies in BC and Ontario, after different levels of debate, rejected this law school. And T.W. sued all the way to the Supreme Court. And we went to the Supreme Court. And there's me with our counsel, Wes McMillan and Caitlin Shane. Uh, Wes now has his own firm, but they were with Hackamy and Ridgedale at the time. And they did this work pro bono. We paid for their flight and about $5,000 roughly of expenses on our part. But we got to be pictured right in front of the Supreme Court. So that was fun. So the arguments we made were that organizations should not have religious rights people believe things groups don't the TWU as an university doesn't have feelings it doesn't have beliefs therefore how can it be protected by religious freedom there's maybe other rights it could claim but in terms of this argument about religious freedom in the charter it shouldn't be there and to our great uh, pleasure one of the judges actually put, picked this up cuz this is something canadian courts haven't really dealt with satisfactorily they've kind of dodged this question anytime they could but Justice Malcolm Rowe, who was the newest justice on the bench at the time, he's now the second newest, uh, he agreed with us. And also the United Church made the same argument, which was interesting, when a church says they shouldn't have religious freedom. The United Church has changed a lot. Uh, they also decided this last year not to expel their atheist minister. So we need to figure out what's going on there at some point. So Justice Malcolm Rowe picks up our argument, agreeing with the majority, that doesn't give us a lot of ammunition, but it does let us refer back to his decision because he's the only one who really firmly touches on this question at that court, at that level. This decision, especially among the majority, also gives us a lot of ammunition in future cases. Should the BC government decide to start removing funds from faith schools or faith hospitals, they can point to this decision to say, look, it's within our right as a government to decide to prioritize or to weigh human rights or LGBTQ equality or access to abortion above claimed religious freedom. Religious freedom is still important in Canada. It's still protected, despite what a lot of religious right will say about this, argue, this case. But we don't have to let it trump human rights. And that was a big victory. We also managed to get a lot of attention out of this. We got a few uh, stories. I got on a few podcasts. And that's a big thing I've been able to do at every one of these steps is help put the BC Humanist Association's name with each of these victories. The Human Rights Commission was built up again, restored this past year. This was also met with a unanimous vote in the BC legislature, which is worth remembering. No one opposed it, or at least was willing to go into the legislature and vote to oppose it. Uh, Laurie Thronis, the Chilliwack MLA for the BC Liberal Party, abstained from the vote because of us. He saw that the report, the consultation report written by MLA Ravi Colon here, talked in terms of religious freedom about how the non-religious should be protected. They quote Ezra in that report, because you wrote in after we started making submissions to say, make sure non-religious people are protected as well. And because no religious groups actually really wrote in to this consultation, that's all that the religious rights section of the report had to say. So Laurie Thronis, who is an evangelical Christian, was very offended. He felt like, there was no guarantee that the religious people would be protected by a human rights commission, which is not borne out by any evidence when you look at any other province. Human rights commissions are there to proactively promote everyone's human rights, whether you're Christian, Muslim, atheist, gay, trans, straight, etc. There was a case recently in the BC Human Rights Tribunal where a white person was found to be discriminated against by a spa owned by or run by Chinese Canadians who said, they only wanted to hire other Chinese people because they work harder. That's racist, and they got found as being racist. So this went really well, and it was really it's not great to see a politician uh, essentially spreading lies like Lori Thronis did, but at least they're based on things we did. We're nonpartisan. Uh, so this commun- Human Rights Commission will be coming into force in this new year. Its mission and its work will be to promote human rights to give guidance to organizations on how to protect human rights. One of the best examples of what it can do is the Ontario Human Rights Commission developed a policy on what creed means. So their human rights code doesn't protect religion. It protects freedom of creed. But that's kind of a vague word. So the Human Rights Commission there did a bunch of consultations. The humanists in Ontario actually submitted to this. I think the Humanist Society of Ontario might have that name wrong. And in the end, the policy they wrote up said, Atheism and non-religious people are protected by creed explicitly. They face different kinds of discrimination that are worth looking out for. And that guidance means companies that are trying not to discriminate have something to look to, to make sure they're being proactive so we don't have to end up in the tribunal. And we can hopefully start to see similar things in BC. And so we'll be active in making sure that the new BC Human Rights Commission is alive to the many elements of work that we pursue and the way we're trying to promote equality for the non-religious. Those are the victories of 2019 and how they or of 2018, and how they'll go into 2019. And I want to now pivot into a bit more how these uh, victories can help us in 2019. So one of the things we've been trying to accomplish for quite a while is to establish the right to perform marriages. Previous governments have rejected, or previous bureaucrats have rejected us on multiple occasions, and the government ministers in charge of it have been unsympathetic or not willing to listen. They just sort of pass it back to the bureaucrats. Our Marriage Act in BC is the same as Ontario's, almost verbatim. And their government and their bureaucrats at some point got out an application from the Humanist Association of Canada and Ontario Humanist Society to perform marriages, and they just said, sure, you're close enough to a religion for the purposes of the act. What's the harm in allowing you to appoint marriage officiants to perform these? BC's looked at it and said, no, you're atheist. You don't believe in religion. You can't do that." And so it's kind of a double standard. And we've not taken on the case yet, but we're hoping to start to push that in the new year. One of the reasons we haven't taken on the case yet is we need a couple that will only get married under a humanist ceremony. And it's a little hard to ask someone to hold off their marriage for a political cause. It will come up. It did happen in Northern Ireland, and they won a very similar case to what we're proposing. But I'm also hoping that this new human rights commissioner is someone I can start bringing this concern to, and I can also start working with the health ministry in the new year. Because I think the B.C. NDP government, if you look at their list of promises, and you look at the list of promises they made with the B.C. Greens when they formed their confidence and supply agreement, they've checked off almost all the boxes, which leaves them a larger opening in their legislative agenda. Their first year and a half was filled with all their campaign promises, so it was unlikely for them to pick up a change to the Marriage Act. I'm hopeful that now we have a bit more space on their agenda, we can push this through, because I still don't believe that most MLAs are opposed to this idea. When you ask people, when we polled on this, most people support the idea of humanists being able to perform marriages because, again, what's the harm? So that's one of the big things we're going to keep trying to push for. We also need to keep pushing for more protection for people trying to perform medical-assisted deaths or trying to access them. It's been a year and a half since Bill C-14 legalized it in Canada and longer since the Supreme Court struck down the old provisions against assisted dying. Nevertheless, there's still a disconnect between the assisted dying law the federal liberals brought in and what the court decision said, and it's even further to... The own position that the BC Humanist Association has adopted, which is to allow medical assisted death for all who choose it, freely choose it. Right now, the big outstanding issues are people who want advanced requests. So that's people who might have a degenerative illness where they want to say, if I reach this state, you can pull the plug because I might not be mentally competent to make that decision then. Mature minors, which under every other realm in Canadian healthcare, once you can demonstrate to a doctor that you're mature, you can make your own medical decisions. And people with mental illnesses, which do have access in some other countries, because mental illness is not a simple thing. There are periods where you can demonstrate competency, but you may not want to live with that illness. And those are things still being looked at by the federal government. But on the other side is also these religious hospitals and hospices that aren't allowing medical assisted and assisted deaths on premises, which means people are forced to endure traumatizing transfers. And why are we funding religious hospitals anyway? It's 20, 2019. There has been some progress in Chilliwack and the Fraser Valley. A lot of hospices, even secular ones, initially refused to provide assisted dying. But I think because BC has been at the forefront for a lot of this in terms of the demand for assisted dying and the people willing to go for it, hospices are starting to change their policies. But we still have Providence Healthcare where if you're taken to a hospital in the city of Vancouver, you have a high chance of going to that hospital just because you go to the nearest one. That's how our healthcare system works. You don't choose which hospital you go to if you're in an ER situation and if you're put in a bed there, you then have to hope that you can get off premises if you need an assisted death. We have reason for optimism because in Alberta where they've seen even where they have even more religious hospitals, there's been a growing outcry over this and there's a strong lobby there. And the NDP government in Alberta, Sarah Hoffman, the health minister, is talking about how they need to review these policies and whether things should be changed. And so we may actually see movement in Alberta to force some of these hospitals to provide legal medical services. This can also hopefully help access to abortion, which remains this less talked about issue, but these same hospitals often don't like to provide abortions. And it's worth remembering that the people who work in these hospitals aren't opposed to these procedures for the most part, especially St. Paul's. It's in, down, or it's in the West End. They support gay rights. The people who work there support assisted dying. They're just not allowed to do it because the administration, the bishops who run that hospital, don't let them. The other big uh, success in 2018 for promoting uh, choice in healthcare is that Dying with Dignity got its charitable status back. A number of years ago, Dying with Dignity Canada actually lost its charitable status because of these political audits. Dying with Dignity Canada was not being too political. They were found to have not, it shouldn't have been registered as a charity in the first place, according to the auditors. And because I guess they were trying to promote something that wasn't legal. But now that dying—that assisted dying is legal, Dying with Dignity Canada has charitable status again, and can hopefully do more in the new year. And there's also hope with the Lamb case that the BC Civil Liberties Association is leading. This is a woman who, I believe wanted an advance request and has sued the federal government. Unfortunately, they're having to relitigate all of the facts and the BCCLA fought all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada to try to use the evidence from the Carter case rather than have to show all over again that this is unjust, it puts people in needless suffering and so forth. This means the case will take longer, cost more, but they won it once. So hopefully there's hope for more expanded access to assisted dying in 2019. Similarly, we've made some progress in the last year, and we're hoping to make a lot more progress in the new year on making sure that addictions recovery options are secular and evidence-based. BC's always been at the forefront of promoting evidence-based medicine and harm reduction, particularly because we are often in such health crises with opioids and HIV-AIDS that we don't really have a choice but to use what works. We can't rely on Faith to treat these things so the provinces under both governments or different governments recognize the importance of harm reduction sites that's why insight was founded here and was fought so hard by the people of Vancouver in the new year we're hoping to see Byron Woods human rights complaint go forward to an actual hearing and hopefully a decision it shows you part of the problem with relying on the tribunal is when you actually try to go to get a decision it can take years to actually get a decision. But we did see a human rights complaint be decided last year on this question of, should people be forced to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, where by an organizational policy, and that was found to be discriminatory on multiple grounds, partially disability, partially uh, mental health, but also the religious aspect, that you shouldn't be forced to attend something that requires faith in a higher power, however you define that. For many of us, higher power is clearly God, and we don't want that because we're humanists. So we're hopeful that that can also help, because that human rights complaint was targeting a a hospital union, a health region. I know that Byron and others are hoping to push that to other health regions to make sure across the province all of these policies are changed so that at least healthcare workers are protected from this. And we still can hopefully rely on the Human Rights Commission when it gets up and running, and the new mental health uh, ministry to start giving draft policies on how to make sure people have at least choice to choose evidence-based secular recovery options. So we did some other fun things last year. Uh, we started complaining about taxes not being, or churches not being taxed. We got the list of every municipality in BC, and we emailed them all and said, do you tax your churches? Yes or no? How much do you tax your churches? What ways do you give them exemptions? And we found some interesting data. So the way it works in BC is the provincial law requires that houses of worship be exempt. So if this was our church, this room would be tax-exempt by the provincial law. But city could decide whether the parking lot that's attached to it would be tax-exempt or not, or a playground, or things that aren't used for praying in. Cities, it turns out, we kind of assume that they don't tax churches, that they give exemptions. And that's true for most uh, municipalities in BC, it turns out but many actually don't provide any additional tax exemptions. The city of Vancouver only provides uh, tax exemptions to heritage homes. They don't give any other permissive tax exemptions. A couple other small municipalities do the same, and their argument is we would rather not have residents shoulder the tax burden for these properties that they may or may not support. What we'll instead do is give grants to the organizations we support. So I remember looking at, I think it was the small town of Karameos in the South Okanagan, and their policy was they don't even give a tax exemption to the local library. they give a grant to the library, which seems unnecessary, but fine, that's their local debate. There was another third of the municipalities around the city around the province, though, where to provide a tax exemption to a church, they actually asked the church, "So what do you actually do? What's your public benefit? How do you help the community?" And these forms varied widely from like just check that you support community in some way to providing like essay responses on how you help. And then the city council would look at those and decide whether your public benefit was worthy of the tax exemption you are claiming. And so that was something really interesting to find. And we're going to try and dig more into that in the new year. And we're going to try to provide some guidance to municipalities to say, here's ones we think are better. And here's ones that you should probably avoid. And I think this idea of a public benefit can be a really valuable way for cities to move forward as there are a lot of religious groups across the province that do a lot of good. On the other hand, there are a lot who are maintaining empty lots. And I think I saw a good example from Summerland where there were actually satellite photos of churches where they circled empty lots and said, you're not doing anything with this. You've talked about building social housing there. That would be great. You're not doing it. So until you break ground, we're going to phase out your tax exemption. And that kind of way of approaching it, I think, has wide appeal. And maybe if we're wildly successful with that, UBCM, we can get a municipality to bring that to UBCM and really start to push that. And this could mean hundreds to thousands of extra dollars for small municipalities, and at least mean a more fair tax burden for everyone. We also started digging into private schools. We downloaded the list of all the private schools across BC that get $425 million this year and will get more next year. And we categorized them. We said, you know, are, is this a secular school that's just trying to teach academics from maybe a slightly different view than the public system, or is it an evangelical school, a Sikh school, etc.? Pictured here is Pacific Academy, where they ask if you teach your if your kid can demonstrate that they speak in tongues, you get preferential admission. This school receives, I think, six million dollars a year. I don't think they believe in. Cre- I think they support creationism in science class too, but I won't quote that for sure. And we went through many of these schools and found that, yes, a bunch of the evangelical Christian ones say on their website proudly that they teach creation in science class, and they get public funding. A number of others have clear policies that would prohibit anyone who is in a same-sex relationship from teaching there, working there possibly as a janitor even. Um, If you're in a same-sex relationship, your kids might not be able to go there. Or if your kid realizes, that they aren't straight when at school, which will probably happen, they might get expelled. And you have to think about the kids don't generally have choice of what school they go to. That's the parents. And so why are we punishing these students? And why are we funding schools that punish these students? The other thing we see is there's sort of two classes of schools, private schools in BC, that get funding. Most of the religious fall under the, and most private schools are religious. Uh, The group one qualification, that's where they get 50% of their funding from the provincial government. And they have to not spend more per student than a public school. And they have to follow the curriculum, but they can top it up with things like creationism or extra sports, if that's the kind of private school they are. But there's a second type of private school, group too, where they're the elite ones. These tend to be more secular, but they tend to be more like West Point Grey Academy, these sort of prep schools. They're very hoity-toity, I guess, upper class. Those get 35% of the funding of a neighboring public school which on a sort of socioeconomic uh, equality position, which is a humanist position, why are we funding socioeconomic segregation? Why are we funding like class separation between the rich and the poor? When we've put out our research, so we've done polling on this and this study on where this money is going, this is getting cited by other organizations. And I had the opportunity because of this research to get invited to a think tank in December um, with public education advocates where they quoted our research, and there was not actually a lot of other research on private schools in BC. The rest of it is mostly coming from the Fraser Institute, who want to see more private schools and want to see less public funding. And so that kind of highlights that we have a huge opportunity here to do a lot more, because sadly, there aren't stronger voices for public education in this province, and there aren't people doing the groundwork. I think there's going to be a movement that's starting to grow, and we talked to some people from Alberta who are leading that. but. Right now we've put out some of the best research on private schools in BC so we need to do more of that the next thing we've started to talk about a little bit and this has been on my mind for a while because we're in the midst of a housing crisis in BC are discriminatory housing programs and the funding that does go to them so we're in a housing crisis and so every and a homelessness crisis so every extra bed that can be put out there to get someone off the street is a social good because we know there's plenty of evidence that shows housing-first type approaches really help people get their lives back in order and get off drugs and get jobs and so forth. However, a large number of these housing programs are run by churches, and they tend to be run by evangelical churches, the Salvation Army, or there's the Christian Missionary Alliance, I think, in Langley is one other. And those, as always, have sort of two nefarious types of approaches. One is the exclusion, whether it's excluding atheist people who don't believe in the right faith, or LGBTQ people often, or they tend to be coercive. So it may not be a you have to pray six times a week to stay here. It might just be a very heavy implication of that. A oh, you're not, I didn't see you at church this week. Why do do you really want to stay in this house? And it's that level that I don't think there's any oversight over. And I've heard from people in these houses where they're in a very precarious situation. And so it's not just enough to say on paper that they don't push religion on people, because if no one's going to complain in these situations because they'll lose their home, and that could be their only house. So we started looking at some of the data that comes out when the latest housing announcement of, I think, 3,000, 4,000 new beds funded by the provincial government came out. I went through the list and did find luckily just two religious groups on there. They were both leaning towards the discriminatory end. One was the Langley Church I mentioned, one was the Salvation Army. But I think we need to put more pressure on BC Housing to really start stepping up its game to make sure that every bed that we're paying for as taxpayers is inclusive, secular, and protects the rights of everyone in there. Well, we also make sure we get enough beds to end the homeless crisis. Also in December, we launched a a small study, but it's actually engaged a lot of people, which is really fun, to see what prayers are being said in the BC legislature. So if you don't watch all of uh, CPAC to see what's happening in the BC legislature every day, you might not know that our MLA start every day with a prayer. They start the uh, session with the throne speech, and that starts with a bit more of a pomp and circumstance where they bring on a First Nations person to do an in- indigenous invocation and then they usually bring on a christian or a jewish or a muslim a different faith leader to do that kind of invocation but on the day-to-day normal sessions a different mla is invited to open with a prayer that they feel appropriate in other provinces they don't may not have prayers i think ontario still does the lord's prayer every day which is a clearly christian one bc's is a weird bc's approach is this hybrid of Well, if we allow any prayers, hopefully it'll be diverse enough that it reflects the diversity of the province, and maybe that's okay. And we can have a debate about whether we actually think that's okay. But the first question this clearly raises is, are the prayers actually diverse, and do they actually represent the diversity of this province? So the way we're trying to go about this is transcribing all these prayers so we can start doing some data data analytics on them. Because unfortunately, Hansard hasn't been writing them down for us. So in December, we put out a call to volunteers, and we've had over 40 people sign up to start transcribing prayers. There were 644 videos of daily legislature sitting since 2003 on their website, so 15 years worth of prayers, which is a nice data set. Uh, The coordinator who reached out to me to launch this study had just like salivated about doing this, because he loves data and that kind of approach. Uh, When I put these slides together, I think on Thursday, We already had over 300 of those prayers, so over halfway done since December, because I guess a lot of people really just like using their holidays, listening to like two-minute prayers from legislators. Uh, Here's one of my favorite ones that I saw early on. This is a clip, just a part of what it said. Uh, Father in heaven, once again, we take this opportunity to thank you for the opportunity to serve the people of British Columbia in this house and for the health and strength to do so. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was another one that he sent to me from... Uh, the member for Sunshine Coast, who I think was Nicholas Simons at the time, and still is, who said, Dear Creator, give us the strength to do good for the people of British Columbia, and remember the importance of church and state separation. Amen. (laughs) Because I think some of the MLAs see the irony of this, and I have had MLAs actually ask me, is there anything you can do about this? And the frank answer is, I don't actually know. So we do have a very strong ruling from the Supreme Court of Canada that says municipal prayers at municipal councils, are unconstitutional and can't be done. And so we're actually going to email that to every municipality in BC this year because some are still doing it. I know a lot of the big cities changed their policies following that ruling. But when I saw Langley's new council go in, I flipped on their website for some reason. I think their city had three Christian preachers sort of open up their city council. So sometimes you need to remind politicians of their secular duty. But legislature and parliament are different because they have parliamentary privilege. The courts are very unlikely to move into the legislative branch and tell them what to do. And so there's a lot of, it hasn't really been tested. But I would be skeptical that a court would tell the BC legislature how to conduct its business. now. MLAs can tell each other how to conduct their business, and so we need to start making the arguments to give them the ammunition to make these changes within their caucus and push it in there. Now, the legislature, as you know, is in a very uh, precarious state with the essentially tie between the BC NDP and the BC Liberals and the Greens sort of holding the balance of power, and so this might not be a priority for any MLA to really push. It's not the kind of thing that will probably bring the government down, but it will probably really upset those Christian right MLAs and gin up some media attention because who doesn't like atheists complaining about prayers. And so as I mentioned, reaching out to city prayers as well. So those are the kind of things we've been working on as an organization with the support of the board. This isn't just me. This is sort of working together. A lot of you have done a ton of work either helping by being members, donating, writing emails when I ask or signing those petitions. All of these things help spreading the word on social media. And really, it's just a matter of keeping a continual growth in our organization. I think we just capped, or we just peaked 3,000 emails in our database, which meant our monthly fees for our website actually go up. But that's a good thing when we have more people that we can reach every week. And so when I put calls to action on each of these things, more people are able to engage and push policymakers to make the changes we want to see for a more secular BC. So thank you all for the continued support. And let's take some questions and discussion.